Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Dan McGowan, in for Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast, where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Providence Mayor Brett Smiley has had a rough few weeks. First a rainy PVD fest, and then the flash flooding from even more rain. But hidden among the dreary news was also a victory, a landmark agreement with Providence's four private colleges that will bring in more than $200 million over the next 20 years. We'll talk about all of that and more after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Providence Mayor Brett Smiley. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Dan. Mayor, you were actually on the podcast three months ago, but there's been a lot of news since then. Uh, Namely, one of the big ones the last couple of weeks has been this landmark deal with uh, the four private colleges in the state. For listeners who might actually not know that there was a deal out there, just give us the kind of one-minute overview. Yeah, so there's a 20-year agreement with the four private colleges. That's Brown, RISD, Johnson & Wales, and Providence College. There's really no strings attached, and there's no land sales or trades or anything like that. It is a straight-up payment in lieu of taxes over the course of the next 20 years. And then there's a separate MOA between Brown and the city. It's a 10-year agreement that is more transactional, and, and I'm upfront about that fact. But what Chris Paxson and I wanted to do was to try to get to a place where we could start to, as we say, align interests. And so... There's $46 million over 10 years, and there are five city blocks that we are going to support their taking of. It still has to go through the regular process that any other developer or institution would have to go through, but I've pledged my support in that process. But then there are these incentives that are in place where our interests align. So, for example, they can get credit or a reduction of their payment if they take a building that they no longer need and sell it and put it back on the tax rolls. That's a win-win for us. I do want to encourage them to sell buildings they no longer want. There's also a credit that can be given if they serve as rent-paying tenants in a building. We're recording this podcast right now in the CIC building. This is a perfect example. Brown is a tenant in this building. They pay taxes. They pay rent. We all know Brown's got plenty of money. They don't need to be a tenant. They can build and own whatever they want. But they've seen that they have a role to play 
to get development going, that they sign on as a tenant, and then the developer's willing to go forward. And so we've added these other incentives to the MOA, which is this separate agreement uh, that's a little bit more what Chris and I had kind of dreamed of creating. The MOU between the four private colleges is a very simple, straightforward agreement for payments in lieu of taxes over the next 20 years. And together, these represent more than double the payment that we used to receive as a city. And by our math, the most generous agreement between colleges and a host community that exists in the country. Providence isn't the only community going through this. All the colleges in Boston have an agreement. Yale and New Haven have an agreement. Penn and Philadelphia have an agreement. So this is not new. And we all, just like all the colleges, I assume, talk to their colleagues about how's it going with your, your host community. The other mayors talk about it too. And uh, and so I really wanted to be able to put something forward that I could say was best in the country. Did you get any good advice from other mayors? I did talk to the person who was the CFO in Boston when Mayor Menino at the time struck the original deal there and got some good advice there. You know, the Boston agreement was a little bit different in that it was really led by the institutions. And, you know, and so, I mean, that's something to aspire to as I think about you know, our ongoing challenge with lifespan, they had a hospital president and a college president really lead the effort to organize their colleagues in the nonprofit institution world to step forward with a solution. In Providence, it's always been the city driving the negotiations and the institutions reacting. I want to move on, but you just mentioned lifespan. That's the one nonprofit, major nonprofit in the city that doesn't have a current deal with the city. You've been fairly vocal Mm -hmm. about your frustration with the way kind of negotiations really haven't started with them. What's the status right now? Yeah, so we finally have the first negotiation meeting on the books for early October, a couple weeks from now. It's really frustrating to me that it's... Kind of, it has taken to October. Yeah, you're, you're had, not too busy, right? Well, I had the first conversation with the new president of Lifespan in January. Right? This is, and it, it's been 10 months or will have been 10 months before we actually sit at the table. And that's very frustrating to me. They are now the only major not institution without a pilot agreement. Everyone has figured it out. Care New England, which is a much smaller organization with all of the same financial challenges that Lifespan will be quick to tell you that they have. Care New England has a, a pilot agreement with us. They've figured it out. Lifespan certainly can. Uh, let's move on to education. This is hard to believe, but it's the fifth school year that the state takeover um, you know, has been making its way through Providence schools. I feel like you've had long enough to make this evaluation. Can you give us a letter grade on what you think of the the, the state takeover? I don't know why reporters love asking letter grade questions. It's a it's like a common benchmark. Uh, it gives us a headline. Is there. that what it is? I mean, certainly the overall is incomplete. There are some areas where I think they're getting a passing grade, and there's some areas where they haven't been able to make progress. You can give yet. us a GPA if you want. There you go. <laughs> well, my brother. Uh, who wasn't quite as studious as I I was, uh, used to like to say, C's get degrees. And uh, that was his mantra to get through college. uh, And it worked, by the way. Um, It's impossible to ignore the impact of the pandemic, of course. I think we have struggled with a lot of teacher vacancies, but at the same note, they've done a really good job of trying to recruit uh, new teachers, teachers of color. There's been a lot of programs put in place to try to incentivize new teachers. There's been partnerships that have been built with TFA and with teaching colleges in Rhode Island. And I'm excited about the at least one-year extension of the teacher's contract, which extends the school day. Would you like to be a part of those negotiations the next time around? In a couple Uh, of months, basically? 
I would. I think, uh, you know, and I imagine we'll talk about it, but eventually these schools are going to come back to the city. And, uh, yeah, when? And we don't know yet when. Um, we don't know yet when. And I think we're doing the students and families a disservice to make that decision based upon some date on a calendar. I, I do think it should be based upon some metrics for outcomes, because if we just pick a date, then we're just picking a date, whether we're ready or not. There are things that the school department should be doing in terms of increasing student performance. And then there are things the city needs to do, by the way, also. Um, you know, One of the cl clear takeaways from the Johns Hopkins report was the layers of bureaucracy in city government back when it was in local control. And if we just go back to that again, we're not helping families or students at all. Now, that said, I think it it's hopefully while I'm mayor. Certainly, if I get a chance to serve all eight years, it will be while I'm mayor. But it should be based upon when we hit certain objectives and not because we've crossed some date threshold. Do you anticipate then that it will be, if at any time, it'll be later in the first term as opposed to, I think some people might say, hey, can, will the city get the schools back at the beginning of next school year? Uh, I would ar argue against it happening next school year. I think we need at least a year from purely from the city side to get ready. It's hard now. It's complicated on how we work together on certain things. We just, you know, scrambled to get schools ready. There's still a lot of kind of blurred lines or crossed lines over who's responsible for what, particularly when it comes to facilities, because the city still owns the buildings themselves. And so to kind of un unscramble those lines and make sure we know who's responsible for what and put the right processes in place. That's a year's worth of planning. I don't think it's going to be September. I would argue that it shouldn't be September, you know, nine, 10 months from now, but it could be the summer after that or the summer after that. You've now had uh, more than a week to reflect on sort of the fallout from PVD Fest as you smile there. So I'm curious, looking back now, do you have any regrets about how things played out other than the weather, which we'll stipulate was a huge problem for PVD Fest. I don't have regrets in that sense. I, again, as I've said many times, this festival has evolved quite a bit. And even the Alorza version of PVD Fest, he didn't create PVD. I mean, he branded it PVD Fest sure. and he put his own stamp on it, but it existed before that. And it has evolved over the years from various uh, earlier festivals by different names, but it's all kind of but the same. But Mayor, just to push back, because hmm. I want to be clear on uh, my view of this as somebody who's covered this and lived in the city, and you've been here too, so there's no question you've seen different versions. I think the prior to Mayor Lorza's PVD Fest, this was an event every summer that was kind of fun and meant largely for the um, local kind of independent artists, right? It was it was definitely the music scene focused. I think Mayor Lorza branded it very well, put it downtown, made it uh, something like a memorable experience. And then it was notably different this time around. Again, I'll give you weather, but uh, do you want it to be an experience that everybody talks about sort of all year long that they're looking forward to? Or do you want it to be something that's maybe a little more low-key, kind of family-friendly, um, that is fun, but is not necessarily kind of the big celebration that it was under Mara Lorza? I don't know if that's a fair question. I, of course, I want people to look forward to it. Um, 
But you know, all of these things are trade-offs. The the previous iteration required a tremendous amount of city staff time and city resources, and that comes at the expense of other things. Of course, I want people to be excited, and I what I really want, and one of the things I was disappointed by this year was that there wasn't sufficient audience for some of our artists. I had really hoped that we could refocus on the arts, help expose local talent to bigger audiences who might become fans and go see them elsewhere and support their art, et cetera, and was disappointed at the crowds at some of the performances. That's still my aspiration, and to do it in a way that's sustainable, that doesn't require multiple staff people working year-round on this one weekend. And so we're going to continue to kind of uh, let the dust settle a little bit. We're getting plenty of feedback. Uh, and uh, Is there any chance you would just completely cut it off? Not, I don't mean cancel it, but I mean completely cut it off from kind of any city control uh, other than maybe the funding? I think – I don't think it's going to be next year because there's no one stepping forward, but it would be – I think nice if one day in the future there was an entity that wanted to run this. I mean, when you think about, you know, people love to throw around South by Southwest or Jazz Fest. Or these, those aren't city-run events, right? Those are independently run events, certainly sponsored by and sanctioned by, and I assume generously supported by their host community, their host city. This is a city-run event, and we have a producing partnership with FirstWorks who does great work, but it is a city-run event. And so I think that one way forward certainly is to get to a place where another entity, either new or existing, wants to own this. And then maybe the policy choices of successive mayors doesn't become an issue anymore because it's run by another entity um, that can can you know provide that continuity. In the meantime, um, you know, I have the opportunity since the city's paying for it and the city's supporting it to put my own stamp on it. I can't let you get out of here without talking about sort of weather and infrastructure. Mm. You've seen lots of flooding. This was not an issue that you necessarily thought was going to be top of your priority list coming in as mayor. Things have changed very clearly. You mentioned on Newsmakers recently uh, this idea of rain barrels in the city. Is there any chance we're going to see you have to mandate things like rain barrels or other changes that people will, will actually have to implement themselves as residents? I'm going to make a trash analogy because um, <laughs> what good mayor doesn't want to talk about trash? <laughs> right. So the way that works in the city is we pay and it gets embedded into your property tax bill for the garbage that we send to the landfill. We don't pay for what gets recycled. And so the city has a financial incentive, and, and then we therefore incentivize our residents to recycle more and throw away less. We're going to start doing more composting and, and other ways to divert solid waste from the landfill. We need to do the same thing with water. We need to incentivize residents to keep water out of our storm sewers. And there are many strategies by which to do that because we pay significantly for the sewer infrastructure, which we, I mean, theoretically could keep building bigger and bigger, but I don't think that's the, the most economically efficient thing to do. I don't think it's the most environmentally appropriate thing to do. And what we should be doing is incentivizing businesses and homeowners and residents to keep the water out of the storm sewers in the first place. And so whether it is a fee or a rebate or an incentive or a discount or some combination of all of those kind of financial levers that we get to pull in order to keep 
water out of the sewers in the first place, that's where we're headed because that is what's in the best interest of the city financially. That's what's in the best interest of the city from a, a climate resiliency perspective. And that's how I think we adapt to this new future without just continuing to put more and more bigger concrete pipes in the ground. Is there a new project in your next budget that you are really committed to kind of figuring out so that maybe you can at least address uh, flooding in, in certain neighborhoods? Yeah, I mean, there are certainly flood-prone, like chronic, it, after all the rain that we've had this summer, like we we know the hot spots. I get in the truck late at night and go drive around to watch it myself. It's Valley Street, it's Charles Street, it's Branch Avenue, it's Pleasant Valley Parkway, it's the bottom of Atwell's. We know where the spots are. And so residents and business owners should expect to see some uh, intentional and specific interventions in those low-lying areas that will probably be a combination of both hard infrastructure, sewer upgrades, and green infrastructure, all the things that I was talking about earlier. Mayor, on the armory, you've said you want millions and millions of dollars, more than $40 million from the state if you were going to kind of take it over. Can you tell us what's the status of, of that, uh, those negotiations? Yeah, so the negotiations are certainly cordial. I think the state's very open and, and actually interested in the city taking possession of the building. And I know this is true from my time in state government. There's only two ways to kind of meet those financial asks that we've met. Either the General Assembly appropriates specific funds, which would be next session, or we work within the buckets of funding that the state already has available. And so the governor has started to uh, kind of problem solve or tasked his team at DOA to problem solve with us of here's the places where we have funding. And do you think any of these funding streams could help make it work? And so we're working through those funding streams right now, trying to think about what the program uh, use for the building would be and do they align with where the money exists. And so this is probably going to take another couple of months. If you if you could get the money, could you have to go back to the drawing board or could you go with the scout plan that, that's been you know widely publicized? We don't have to go back to the drawing board. And I will say, having spent a lot of time with the community over there, there's a lot of fatigue in that neighborhood that they have gone through a decade's worth of public meetings, plans and public meetings and listening sessions, et cetera. Uh, you know, community input uh, is really important. This is a place where I don't feel like community Im- any more community input is necessary because they've already given their input and their input resulted in that plan. And so were we to simply just execute the plan that we're already devised, I think we're ready to go. If I were to make changes to the plan, maybe to align with some of this funding, that I would take back to the neighborhood to make sure that it's something that they would support. But there's no requirement that I start from scratch. And in fact, the fewer changes, the better in terms of being actually able to execute and execute rapidly. Last two questions for you very quick. If President Biden doesn't run, do you think Gina should run for president? I think Gina Raimondo would make a great president. She's a young woman. She's got plenty of time and a bright future. I know she's entirely committed to the Biden administration. She's I've had a chance to talk to her about it. She says he's great and she loves working for him. And I'm confident that she's working very hard for his reelection. But I think she's an exceptionally talented person. When you text with her, do you tell her you should be the president? No. 
I don't. <laughs> okay, then when she texts with you, does she tell you you should be the governor? She doesn't do that either. Uh, more often than not, uh, we're trading an amusing story about her kids or some event that has happening in Rhode Island that uh, it's like, I bet you wish you were at Rhodes on the Patuxet with me right now. Uh, and so <laughs> we don't we don't go too far down the path of what she should be doing. It's not my place to tell her what she should be doing, for goodness sake. Nine months in, you're, yeah. uh, you're obviously you've said you want to run for re-election. Mm. Is this the last elected office that you intend to hold? Who the heck knows? That's a family decision that I would need to make. I think a lot of people know. A lot of people know my husband. Um, that's he does not want you to run for anything else, well, I think. He's, God love him. He would probably support me from whatever decided, which is what makes him such a wonderful husband. But it really is a decision that impacts not just my life, but our lives. And, uh, and that's a decision that we'll make together seven years from now. Providence Mayor Brett Smiley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor, follow the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Dan McGowan. Ed will be back next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport. Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.